Hi there, and welcome to our short podcast on housing affordability. Tune in as three urban planning graduate students from California discuss the various facets of our country's housing affordability crisis. Um, and I guess I can begin with an introduction of everyone here sitting today. Uh, my name is uh, Eric Marroquin, and I'll give you a little background. I'm an assistant project manager at a land development firm. Um, and then I will introduce my hostmates. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, Megan, and then Scott, who's also with us. But Megan, I'll start with you and your introduction. Hi, my name is Megan. I work uh, as an assistant planner for a small city here in Southern California. And I am working on my master's degree currently in urban and regional planning. And hello, my name is Scott. I am an urban planning student doing my master's program. Uh, I don't have a job in the urban planning field. I'm actually a sales representative for T-Mobile. Right on, but you're well-versed, right? <laughs> I am well-versed. Right on. Alrighty, so we're gonna get down to our uh, subtopics. And one of the subtopics that we have listed for today is causes for the affordable housing crisis. Um, and so right off the bat, I'm gonna give you guys kind of my raw opinion on what I believe to be the cause of the housing crisis that we find ourselves in California. Um, and so I'll begin first and foremost. Um, I think that a lot of development wants to wants to happen around the coastal cities of California, right? And then the adjacent cities to the coastal cities, right? So I believe that because California has great weather, um, has <clears throat> great amount of diversity, right? That it's a very popular destination to live in. And as a result, there is a very high demand for housing in California. Um, and so unfortunately, what I believe to be the case is that there is not enough supply to meet said demand, right? And so just off the top of my head, just going back to my point regarding the local cities and the, the beaches, right, um, is that um, I, I think what's happening is when we are looking to develop any sort of housing, right, and more particularly dense housing, right, to apartments, condos, that sort of thing, a lot of people are opposed because what they're trying to maintain is the status quo, that single family residential house. And I think what a lot of people are doing is they're using a lot of, you know, zoning regulation, land use regulation to mm -hmm. kind of oppose some of that developments that's happening um, around these surrounding cities. And so what we're finding ourselves doing is kind of moving further and further inland um <clears throat> to produce housing and then out there it's like there's no problem in terms of what kind of housing gets built right because there is vacant land that's a lot more affordable than what we find ourselves here in the coastal cities or even the cities adjacent to the coastal cities so there's a combination of factors um that play into it that's just kind of off the top of my head uh what i believe to be the cause but i'll also get into my sub bullet points as i've kind of read into or i've looked into academic journals um, and, you know, articles as to what are the potential causes for this crisis uh, in affordable housing. But I kind of wanted to get your guys' take. So um, what, what, what do you guys think so far? All right. So zoning can be used both ways. I look at it. I mean, zoning regulations were set in place for a purpose. Back in the day, you know, they, it was set for trying to get rid of a lot of clutter because there was a lot of disease and stuff going on. So that's when zoning regulations popped up, but it also, you know, started increasing values of things and then started, of course, causing this urban sprawl. So that is one 
I, I feel is a problem. And California, I mean, in itself is just super expensive. And, and I think you're right. I think it's just because this is the place people want to go. Anytime you're looking at uh, um, that's what a huge part of the value raise is about, is about where you're located at. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're talking about, let's say, market rate, uh, market rates going off of, you know, somebody's saying they're opening up a, uh, you know, an apartment complex and they're looking at places around them. They're saying, okay, so these people charge this much. This is how much I'm going to charge. Um, so there's not a, really a whole lot of investigation there. There's not an actual, an actual formula for that. Right. Um, so it's really just, it depends on, you know, okay, these people are paying this amount of money. So it's the same thing. And when we're talking about California, everybody wants to be here. So there's like a huge bidding more people coming in here and saying, oh, you know, I'll pay this much. I'll pay this much. I'll pay top dollar for these places because this is where all the businesses are, where everybody's at. This is where you want to be. So that's, you know, I think that is really a big cause of the increase in home values, especially for California. Awesome. I agree with you, uh, <clears throat> Scott. Megan, anything to add? Um, I actually wanted to ask you a question. Like in your research, did you find that like um, the costs of, building affordable housing or just building housing in general has increased or is it more like external factors like what you guys have discussed so far? So it's actually a combination of both. And then that could be a good segue to my additional bullet points. Um, so hopefully I can answer your questions with these additional bullet points that I wanted to include about this discussion. So I guess I can start there if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, more or less, I, what's happening again, there is a number of reasons why the house, there is a housing crisis in California. It's not strictly based on what I said or even what Scott said. Um, but one of the reasons that I found in my academic research um, is that there are major cuts to funding in affordable housing. So let me, let me expand on that. Uh, so Governor Jerry Brown in 2011 pushed the state of California to eliminate more than 400 cities and county redevelopment agencies across the state that allowed local governments to use a portion of their property tax growth to build affordable housing. That after 2011, after our recession was gone, right? And so I, I think what we have seen in addition to that is that there's far less additional funds that allow for affordable housing to be built since 2011. There hasn't been a lot of opportunity and mm -hmm. it looks like we've depleted a lot of the affordable housing uh, property tax growth uh, pot that we were pulling from. And so unfortunately that's one of the results of this housing crisis in California. Um, in addition to that, the cost, as you were saying, of building has risen dramatically. Um, as Scott mentioned, um, you know, building in California is like gold. It's a landmine, right? Everyone wants to be here. Everyone wants to move here. Um, and so what I found, and, and I can actually read this bullet points because I think it goes to Mike's points. Um, according to NBC News, residential properties valued at a staggering approximately 150000 per acre in California's coastal regions. Again, that's 150000 per acre, right? Compared to 20000 per acre on average in other metropolitan areas of the country. Right, so it's 150,000 per acre versus the average 20,000 per acre elsewhere outside of California, right? And so that number already is pretty outstanding. It's kind of hard to fathom what that number really looks like, but it's so it's substantial compared to what the average is. Um, in addition to that, as we've learned in class, uh, there are permits, sorry, there's um, there's development impact fees, right? So permits and development impact fees, fees have risen. 
Uh, they've increased as cities have seen it, their population rise. Um, they're, they're, one thing to keep, uh, take into consideration is that, you know, these also help offset, uh, you know, developments such as schools, police, fire, uh, public utilities, that sort of thing. And so, again, it's it's gotten a lot more expensive to build in California. And my next point is that it hasn't gotten any quicker, right? So a big obstacle, and I shouldn't even call it an obstacle because I'm in favor of CEQA. But what we found with CEQA is that it does delay the process to build housing. Now, I think there are some um, loopholes that allow for housing to, to, to be met uh, in the event that there's a shortage. And I think that's what we're finding ourselves in California. Uh, but I think the CEQA process overall is very uh, disheartening. It's uh, kind of difficult to explain. Um, and I think it poses a lot of challenges to producing uh, a mass supply of housing very quickly. Again, there is a high demand, but there's not enough supply. And in addition to that, there's been a cost of building rise that's been dramatic. Um, and so my last bullet point that I guess I would like to mention is that the state housing laws aimed at spurring development have fallen short, right? So what I'd like to point out here specifically is that it is estimated that by 2025, state housing officials say California needs 1.8 million more housing units to meet projected population growth. But building industry estimates there are higher, right? And they're estimating 3.5 million, right? So the numbers in terms of what the state is indicating and what, you know, developers are indicating are substantial. They're different, right? Uh, by 2025, it's estimated that 1.8 million of housing units is required, whereas the building industry is saying, no, it's not 1.8 million, it's actually 3.5 million, right? So there's a disagreement even then about you know how much housing is actually needed and then in addition to that again there is a cost of you know building that has dramatically risen there is things like sequa that are in place that can potentially slow down the process um and so again there are a number of factors that play into the the housing crisis and why it exists um and these are just to name a few specifically so hopefully i've answered your question megan and off on that in regards to uh, what you're talking about with the fees itself, because I kind of looked at some of that research too. And I found that uh, Los Angeles, like if we're breaking California down, Los Angeles, if you were to say, let's say you want to build a hundred unit multifamily project, um, you're looking at uh, 1.1 million just in fees alone. And that, that's ridiculous. And that's not even the most expensive. I looked at the most expensive was Fremont. Fremont was actually 7.5 million just in fees to a complex like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I read another thing that said that uh, Angeles itself, uh, the land accounts for about 6% of the total cost of the home, whereas in a lot of the other areas, as you were saying, it's a lot cheaper. It could be 1% or less. So land is a big factor. Yeah, and yeah. speaking of land, um, I, I work in a city where it's it's pretty much built out, yet we still have to meet housing numbers um, every single year. And it's it's really hard to do that when when it's pretty much built out and there's not a lot of empty land left and the redevelopment agencies were dissolved. So, I mean, I really don't know. It's It's hard to imagine like solutions for creating more housing when you know redevelopment agency doesn't exist and 
and there's no there's no land left to develop. And and then to your point, right? What ends up happening as well too is that you'll find uh, you know, developers wanting to build multi-housing. Again, it can be uh, apartments, just dense neighborhoods, right? And then what you find again is just the opposition, right? Because everyone does want to keep that status quo. And I get mm-hmm. it. That was the dream that most people were sold, the single family residential. I think that's why a lot of people come to the United States. Um, but yeah, you find that opposition more and more because they don't want it in their neighborhood, right? And so it seems like we're going to have to continue to push development inland. Um you know, and I, I don't know how many people want to live away from, I, I don't want to say necessarily the beach, right? But then it's also the convenience of being right next to Los Angeles or, you know, the freeways that lead you to other adjacent cities where there's things happening and whatnot. There's events and whatnot. And so it, it's, again, there is a number of reasons um, why, you know, we find ourselves in that situation. It's kind of hard to pinpoint one specifically, but, um, you know, I, I think we've uh, brought up some great points um, and I actually wanted to actually kind of shout out some fun facts that I've also researched um, in advance, um, you know, so that there's numbers based behind, yeah, behind our, our discussion. Um, and so some of the ones that I have is, according to CNN, the medium California home is priced at 2.5 times higher than the medium national home, according to a 2019 uh, census study, right? So they got that from the census, CNN put this out. And they're saying that the California home is 2.5 times higher than the national home or the average national home elsewhere, right? Uh, also, in September 2020, California's median home price reached 700000 right? Or approximately 700000 That's a historic high. So if we really kind of think about 700000 what do you guys kind of picture in your heads? Are we talking a four-bedroom, five-bedroom, six-bedroom? Are we talking two-bedrooms? What do you guys think for that price range? In California, um, let's say let's say LA, you're looking at probably for seven hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. You're probably looking at a two bedroom house, and that's that's kind of scary when you really think about it. Because I can tell you a personal story. My parents bought their house back in the nineteen nineties, early nineteen nineties, and they bought a two bedroom. Um, you know, 14 miles away from Los Angeles for approximately 125,000. Granted, the standard of living was different then, but even then, that was a lot of money for them at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, now, you know, we who are maybe potentially looking to moving out and owning our first home, um, you know, we're faced with two bedroom houses. You know, it, it could be in its uh, city, it could be right next to Los Angeles, it can be in Los Angeles, right? But we're looking to pay close to a mill for potentially a two bedroom house. Um, more facts that I kind of wanted to shout out is that rents are among the highest in the country of California, uh, home to seven of the 10 most expensive, expensive cities uh, in the United States. So again, seven of the 10 most expensive cities in the United States. Um, I didn't look into further, I, I didn't look further into what those cities were, but I can imagine one of them was Los Angeles. San Francisco kind of comes to the top of my head, top of the list, Oakland. Uh, San Jose. And so again, we have seven of the 10 most expensive cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to bring up is because I know that San Francisco is the most expensive. According to CNN, San Francisco remains the most expensive city in the United States with the average rent for a two bedroom apartment. We're not even talking about owning a home here, a two bedroom apartment at 3,500 a month. Yeah. Um, And so 
that is outstanding. Again, I think that is a ridiculous amount of money for a two bedroom apartment in San Francisco. It's so good out of, you know, all this nonsense that I shouted, uh, what, what kind of has stuck with you guys? What has resonated with you guys? What's your opinion on all this? Um, you know, whenever you guys feel comfortable, free, feel free to shout out some answers. I mean, just the fact that your parents were able to buy that house for less than 200K is crazy to me, considering how much we would pay for a similar type of house today. Right. Yeah, my, right. my parents bought their house in Diamond Bar for, I think they said 75000 back wow. in 1975. And their house is worth about 600000 now. So, I mean, and I mean, that's kind of going into some of the, uh, like my, my dad drove a, a truck. He worked for Wonder Bread. And then my mom worked at like, uh, I think the La Pointe Mall at the time at, in Broadway, just as a sales mm -hmm. rep. So, I mean, they were probably bringing in maybe 40000 a year and they're able to afford a home on that. So, I mean, I think that's some of the stuff, but that's, you know, the way that uh, the home and home prices and rent prices have increased so much faster than then income is just ridiculous. Yes. And that leads us to our next point, which would be uh, discussing the impacts of the housing afford affordability crisis. Um, so I'm just going to go through some points discussing, you know, some of the effects that this crisis has had on um, not just California, but on the entire country, really. Um, so uh, it, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, United States Department, um, defines cost burden families as those who pay more than 30% of their income for housing. I've been looking at like moving out and then what I've found is kind of what Megan is saying. I, I would have to pay more than 50% of my check towards an apartment. Mm. And I just, it's insane. Um, and you know, and these apartments aren't like, you know, great, right? So like, just to kind of give you for instance, right? Like my budget more or less for an apartment was like 1,700. Um, you know, and maybe I'm just a little picky, but that's a whole check gone. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm left with just the other check. Um, and I just think it's insane. That's like more than 50% right there of my income when like, it should be approximately 30%, you know? Yeah. Well, no, 30% already means your cost burden. So anything. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, even 30, like you're at 50, that's really high. That's what lenders look at. Like if you're trying to get a home loan, they want to, you're going to pay for that house is less than 30% of what your total earnings are. Oh, I see. But That's what look, a good, a good lender would do. Yeah. <laughs> they, even they, even that they base it on gross, not what you're actually taking home. So it's mm. actually more than you're paying 30. Most I'm, I'm paying more than 30% uh, <laughs> of their income on housing for sure. So everyone needs shelter. So families that spend a lot of money on housing have less money left over to pay for other goods and services. So for low-income families, this can mean reduced spending on essentials like food and health care. And families that face very high housing costs may fall behind on rent or mortgage payments, which can put them at risk of eviction, foreclosure, and homelessness. Uh, the state's high cost of housing, lack of affordable housing, and stagnant wages block Californians from achieving economic security, including having a stable home. And these challenges are especially acute for uh, minority groups um, and undocumented Californians as well. 
Um, and I also wanted to touch on how COVID-19 has affected housing affordability. Do you guys have any guesses on how, how it's affected uh, the housing crisis? Yeah, um, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> oh, I was, I was going to say um, eviction rates. Eviction right. rates are about to skyrocket. After all these uh, moratoriums are done, people are just going to be out on the streets. It's a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what I was going to say, I actually was kind of to the point <laughs> to what Scott was saying, but I think I, I have an additional point that may be applicable here. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think the situation that we find ourselves in is that there's there's a lot of people in California that live paycheck to paycheck. We're not like the wealthy percentage, right? We're not making a million dollars a year, that sort of thing. And so I think a lot of the low uh, interest rates uh, for housing in California right now really motivates the wealthy in California to purchase homes, right? And so that really makes it that much harder. It limits how much housing is available uh, for people that make, you know, middle income, the middle class or like the low class. Um, and so I, I think that has something to do with it. But, um, you know, that that would be my best guess, Megan. Yeah, and I actually, this may be a little bit off topic, but I kind of wanted to mention something that this reminded me of um, while doing this research. I was on TikTok watching my very educational videos on TikTok, and I actually saw stumbled upon um, a video that said, it was like trying to give people advice on like how to like um, have passive income and make smart investments and stuff like that. And this lady was saying, Hey, everybody, it's almost foreclosure season and you should go out and look for, you know, houses that are being foreclosed on. And I just, I mean, I just, I can't believe that people are, I guess, taking advantage of, you know, other people losing out on their homes. And I just, that was just something that's like really indicative of the kind of capitalistic society we live in and um you know the like how the housing affordability crisis gets worse and is like enabled through you know people who think this way yeah there's uh there's a lot of companies out there a lot of corporations that are buying houses up like like it's hotcakes and they're they're licking their chops right now i guarantee that Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's honestly just so sad. Like, um, go just driving through LA and, um, seeing all the tents out there right next to like these, like the Ritz Carlton and like these mega mansions, you know, it's, it, I just, it's hard to kind of wrap my head around how, um, how we could be so okay with, with what's going on. So the how the housing affordability crisis also uh, impacts traffic. It actually worsens traffic. Um, so while traffic is often cited as a reason not to build housing, um, because you know people think, oh, add more residents to an area, and then you automatically put more cars on the road. Um, but there's actually evidence that. Uh, not building housing can make traffic worse. So when people can't afford to live near their jobs, they move somewhere cheaper and drive to work. So if we think about the low-income workers um, who are working in offices in um, large metropolitan areas, um, 
they have to commute every day and everybody between where they live and where they work is going to have more traffic congestion and worse environmental impact. Um, and when low income people are pushed out of their job centers, traffic can still worsen within that job center because high income people drive a lot, even when they live near transit. What are going to be the solutions here? Seeing that house prices are too high. Um, low income people have to move further and further away to find, you know, the Ford and then, you know, have to drive an hour and a half to work or is just creating more traffic. So I think we all know of some of the, uh, the normal solutions that everybody kind of talked with the, uh, the, you know, the uh, mixed use zoning. So you can kind of put, build more units on a single plot since the since the land's so expensive. That's the only way really to bring down housing costs is to build more units on a plot of land to just bring that portion down. Uh, fee reduction. So for developers, I mean, developers they have a lot to gripe about. You know, they're they're not just raking in all this dough and just pocketing all this money. They're they have to pay higher fees for development of all the fees that are related to as you know as uh, as Eric was saying. Um, you know, incentives and tax breaks, those are also some good sources. But again, you know, tax breaks really only benefit owners. Um, incentives only build, usually they only add for developers. All the incentives are for developers. You know, you get X amount of money for building uh, some affordable units. So it's not really putting money to the people that need it. Um, so it's a good thing that some of the funding sources now that are coming up are more untraditional funding sources. So you have companies like Microsoft, um, you have Amazon, there's the housing business. And what I like about that, I mean, these are big companies, so they have just money to throw. They got all the money in the world that to basically help with this problem here. And they're new, they're, they're semi new to this business. So they're not yet at the point to where they're like, okay, how can we manipulate this market so we can make more money? Um, they also want to keep face. You know, they want to, they want people, hey, Microsoft is doing good. Look at what they're doing for all these people. And look at Amazon. Amazon's a big company and they're dumping all this money to help people out. You know, that's what they want to get the message across that we're going to help people out. So I think that's why it's good to have these new funding sources, these new big businesses. Uh, Microsoft in itself and Amazon are both. Uh, putting up a bunch of money around their um, headquarter cities. So Microsoft itself, they started in 2019. So they, it's both fairly recent, 2019 for Microsoft and Amazon's 2020 for their programs that they're, that they're initiating. So Microsoft is dumping 750 million into essentially one area around the Seattle area. It's a good sound. So it's a, it encompasses about nine cities around Seattle. Um, they already have eight programs going and the different cities to kind of help people out there. And then they also have one grant program to protect against evictions. So that evictions are all going to start coming up now. That's a, that's another good funding source to uh, prevent from these people giving money. I don't exactly, they didn't really go into a lot of detail on how it's going to work and what they're going to do, but it was a significant amount of money that they're dumping into it. And then Amazon's dumping twice as much money into affordable housing. They're doing about 2 billion at what's called the housing equity fund. So that's going to preserve, they're saying on estimate, they're going to preserve around 20,000 units around the 10 Puget Sound and Nashville areas, which are all their headquarter cities, um, because they, they realize, you know, all their workers, you know, they have to commute, they have to travel far. So, you know, building this affordable housing near their headquarter cities is really going to help a lot and save them a lot of space.
Um, yeah, so that, that's cool programs there. I mean, what do you what do you guys think about those programs? What do you think think about big businesses getting into it? Is it be a good thing, or is it going to be bad in the coming in the coming future? I, I can I can shoot first. I I think it's going to be a great thing. Actually, thank thank you for bringing this to my attention. I wasn't even aware of this, but I I think it's it's a great idea. Um, I think they have a lot of money to throw around, and so why not? If it's a tax incentive for them, why not throw it into housing? Right. I'm assuming that some of it's going to go towards like their employers that actually work at you know Amazon, Microsoft, that sort of thing, and then the additional housing is to uh, supply the the market of people that need that sort of housing uh, that don't make such high wages. But um, I actually wanted to bring a question to Megan because she does have the city background experience. And so because you're, you're in planning, Megan, mm -hmm. what are the obstacles that they're going to face in terms of kind of getting this done quickly, right? Because then it goes back to the issue, well, there's high demand, the supply isn't there, right? But then in addition to that, there's the building cost and then just the process alone can be very extensive. So what, what is it from a planning pers perspective that we could do to kind of speed up that process? I mean, honestly, we don't see a lot of affordable housing projects. Um, I'm in a pretty small city. And even then, um, all the new developments kind of go at market rate with like, I don't even think they have a, a minimum percentage that they have to have at affordable housing. So I think uh, hearing that new housing projects are going to be um, majority affordable. Uh, I think that's, I mean, we cities love to hear that, you know, and I, I do kind of agree with something that you said earlier when you were talking about um, causes of the crisis, something that I could see uh, being kind of a bump in the road for these types of projects is the CEQA process. Um, I, I think we all have seen CEQA be used um negatively and as a way to halt projects so um, potentially um, the you know the NIMBYs who don't want affordable housing in their neighborhood or in the street that they that they have to go through to go to work every day um, those will definitely pose um, kind of a large opposition um, in terms of building costs and development costs and stuff like that I'm not too well versed on that on that side um, but just like getting it getting kind of getting the city residents to be on board um as well as uh, the CEQA process may be challenging for large large development projects like this right no but i i mean overall scott i think it's great um i i think it's fantastic and i i think it really just benefits them as well too as california as well you know i think there's a lot of benefit to gain from these housing developments these affordable housing developments. I mean, I think it's great too, but it, it does kind of, it is uh, a little disheartening that it has come to this. I mean, all the money, these large corporations are like, I mean, I don't want to say hoarding, but hoarding, They're hoarding tons of money and the government isn't, I don't know if the government isn't able to, or they just don't want to, you know, help provide housing, um, affordable housing, stuff like that. But like the fact that it has come to this and it, I mean, I guess it kind of shows the system working the way it was intended to, because um, I mean, I feel like this just gives these large corporations even more power because they're saying, Hey, look what we can do for you. But it's, I mean, it's because we gave them all that money in the first place. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword to me. 
And actually, to, to add to what you were saying, Megan, I think you brought up an excellent point in that, you know, at, at least Microsoft and Amazon, right, they're considering affordable housing as opposed to like, hey, we're doing this for profit, right? Whereas right. like a lot of the developers out there are maybe thinking like, how can we make more money? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so right. That, that's 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 great that they're doing that and they're thinking that way uh, because I think they realize, too, that there is a problem. You know, so I, I think it's great. I think it kind of works out. Um, and uh, yeah, I like to I, I like to see what this development looks like when it's finished. Right. Yeah, I think it's um, it comes down to economics for them, too. I think their forward thinking is if there's nobody able to buy a house, they're not going to buy our products either. So let's get them into a house start buying our products again mm -hmm. <laughs> so i mean for them it's a win-win to be honest with you but i do kind of fear that what you're saying mark uh megan that they could just you know turn into the uh the evil developer and say okay we know the housing market now we're in it already let's see how we can spin this so we can make more money i just hope that doesn't happen and I'm, right. i mean i think the biggest thing though for me is and this kind of comes down to causes it's really a market rate. I hate that word. I hate the way it's done. I mean, there's no, there's no formula. You know, there's no nowhere you can go to say, okay, what am I supposed to charge people for rent? Uh -huh. All they're doing really for like, if you, if you have an apartment and you're opening an apartment complex, basically to find out what your market rate's gonna be is you're gonna look at the properties around your area and see what they're charging and you're charging the same thing. Right. But, I mean, if you look at that, what's the problem with that? everybody's already overburdened what they're paying right, right. Now. so you're already setting a price that's overburdening so it's already too expensive mm -hmm. <laughs> so i mean my whole thought is how can we redefine market is there a way to do that and my thoughts is kind of what microsoft and amazon are doing they're, they're kind of heading that way redefining market rate you know making essentially what affordable housing is now market and then coming up with another one somewhere below that, because there are more people that, that you know, homeless people that they don't, they don't have any homes. So you got to get, you got to take another step below that and come up with something some more, I don't know, it has to come from the government, you know, or these big companies, Microsoft and Amazon, just being able to fund people. Because it, it's a little bit easier with, say, uh, a rental place, because you can say, okay, I bought this complex, it cost me X amount of dollars to build it, I have to charge a make profit but if we're going to say redefine market rate as what's the medium income in the area and we'll start with 30 percent of that as the market rate so now what's that going to give me once all my apartments are filled is it gonna am i losing money am i breaking even if i'm losing money the government needs to step in and start paying me some money the problem with that is when you start getting into home ownership and trying to do that with home ownership people are going to be like well wait, wait a minute wait a minute my house, I bought my house with this much money. I'm planning on retiring with this money that my house is going to make. So now in the future, if you change market rate, my house value goes way down. What are you going to do for me? Is the government going to step in and pay me money now that way too? I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of money. So what I mean, I mean what are your, what are your guys thoughts? Is there, is there some kind of way that we can make this work? There's just so many moving parts. So it's really hard to find like a definitive way that will work for everybody. Right. I yeah, mean, I don't I wish, think I wish there was a formula that would just make things so much easier. But you know, it's not 
one size fits all. Housing is not one size fits all. So it's, it's, it's really complex. Yeah, that's, that's more or less what I was going to say, um, as well as kind of what Megan was saying, is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I think redefining what market rate housing is is kind of a critical start, right? And it could potentially lead to a formula, um, you know, but then even once you define what market rate is, uh, there will be outliers, right? And it's how do right. we help out those outliers as well, too? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, it, again, to, to Megan's point, to your point, I think it's a difficult uh, question to answer. And so I, I, I don't know what it would take, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, I, I that's one thing I've been thinking about even before we even thought about doing this podcast and before I even got into this housing class or anything like that. I was like, microwave is just a, it's a joke. It's a, you know, based it's on not what- real. It's yeah, based, based on what people are willing to pay. That's what that's the short definition. Market right. rate is based on what people are willing to pay. It's kind of like you're forecasting what somebody wants to pay for this property. And with that said, I want to thank uh, Megan and Scott for being here today and then bringing your input to the table on this conversation. Um, it's a debate, nonetheless, one that we will continue to argue in the future. But that actually wraps it up for us here. Um, and I want to thank you guys all for listening. So thank you again and uh, be safe. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you, guys.